Hello, and welcome to the Sound of History Podcast. My name is Nick. I am Mika. This is Music History Podcast. I'm trying to teach Mika all about music history, one genre at a time. I don't like how I say my name. Just in general or on this podcast? In general. It's hard to say. I don't think anyone likes saying their own name. I think it's a weird thing. Really? Yeah. Do you not like saying your name? Not really, no. Why? Your name is like good, strong, (laughs) short. Yours is also short and strong. No, mine mine We're the same amount of letters. And I don't like it. All right, well. Yours goes, Nick. And I like it, to say that. It doesn't. It does not go that. Nick. It doesn't do that. Nick. Well, follow us on Twitter. You might be able to catch the top ten of the hundred best albums. Are you there? I think I'm at like eleven or ten right Stop. now. Stop! Oh my gosh, what are you going to do after that? What I don't are you know. going to listen to? I mean, they have plenty of other lists. Or maybe I'll do two hundred through one hundred. Because the list is that'll the be five- worse. Yeah. The list is the 500 greatest albums of all time. I'm listening through the top 100. You should have started at number 500. That would have taken so long. Yeah, but now you're you're going to get to the best album of all time. And then what? Go to the 200th best album of I all time? I might like it more. I don't know. There's a lot of Bob Dylan in the top 20, and I do not like Bob Dylan. So I might like him more. Hmm. Anyway, so you can check out our Twitter. Just Sound of History underscore on Twitter. Or... Not or and check out our YouTube channel. I've been making Either some. Or. <laughs> I've been you making some videos on one. there. Uh, a lot of like abridged versions of our podcast, and then a couple other just fun random videos that I decide to make. So you can check that out. It's cute. You haven't watched a single one. You don't know it's cute. <laughs> I can tell it's cute. <laughs> you don't know that. We could just be making jokes about you in the videos, and you would never know. You make jokes about me in front of me. That's true. All right. Well, we're continuing on with hair metal today. But first. Mika is a host now. Hmm. The dairy-free Parmesan cheese from Follow Your Heart. Is that what it's called? I don't know. Something dumb. I don't know. It's good. It's surprisingly good, especially if you like melt it and stuff. It's very cheesy. I'm happy about that discovery. That's good. I miss cheese. (laughs) Trying to put together like an apps, courses, whatever, like wine night type of meal. It's very difficult without cheese because everything good is cheese. That is true. Everything good is cheese. So cheese why must you hate me (laughs) anything else or is just just cheese Mm, cheese anything else or is Mika no longer the host now I'm done okay goodbye do you do you have a brief recap of hair metal glam metal light metal pop metal whatever you want to call it I remember none you don't remember any of it nope not the big hairdos not the oh I I remember that but I knew that before not striper the Christian hair metal band. Oh, that was bad. We talked about Brett Michaels and Poison. That's right. I forgot that Brett Michaels <laughs> was something other than Rock Someone of Love. Someone searching for love. Yeah. Yeah, it's Rock of Love. Rock of Love. 
Okay, well, I go back and listen to that episode, I guess. Get a refresher, because Mika's not going to give you one. But today, it's very appropriate that this is our 69th episode. <gasps> because we're talking about some of the most notorious debauched partiers in the history of music. Motley Crue. Do you know anything about Motley Crue? The one who who killed his girlfriend. No. Oh. What was that? I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe we already talked about him. Probably, there's one who the lead singer dro- drove drunk and killed the drummer. No, that was last week. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a while ago. Some and and there was a no, that person died in a bathtub. I don't know. That was Jim Morrison? Is that what you're thinking? Someone killed his girlfriend. I have, his I girlfriend was like Canadian or something. Oh, Sid Vicious? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that was the Sex Pistols. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, well, as is typical of band episodes, we'll be going back in time. So get that sound effect ready. You have it ready? I have stuff ready. Okay, (laughs) we'll take that. In December of 1958, Frank Ferrana Jr. was born in San Jose, California. His father left the family when Frank was three years old, so he was raised by his single mother and his mom's parents. But soon after that, when he was six, his mother also abandoned him. Ooh. So he moved in with his grandparents. Apparently, she just couldn't handle being a parent, so she called her parents to come pick him up. Mm. But she couldn't wait until that they until they got there, so she left him sitting on the front porch, locked the door, and went off with some random guy. Stop it. And he said that he has never really gotten over that feeling of abandonment. Whoa. Weird. <laughs> it's weird how actions can have an impact on your kids. While living with his grandparents, he relocated several times. His grandfather was a mechanic, and they never really had a lot of money, but they tried hard to be good parents. Well, at least there was that. (laughs) At least he had someone. Trying. Trying is good. Yeah. I feel like the bar was pretty low, but at least they they met that. The bar was sub-zero. If if zero was was flat. (laughs) On the ground. No. no, Under. Well, zero would be the ground, so sub-zero would be under. Okay. Sub-zero. Flat. It was in Idaho that he first started getting into a little bit of trouble. I'm dumb. No. I think so. (laughs) I don't think so. I think so. Continue. He broke into his neighbor's homes, he shoplifted, and he was expelled from school for selling drugs. His grandparents sent him to live with his mother, who at this point was in Seattle. Um, that's an interesting move. Yeah, I guess she had figured some things out, was getting her life back on track. I don't know. But when he was in Seattle living with his mother, he stole a guitar, sold that guitar, and used the money to buy a bass that he started learning how to play. I feel like we could have cut out the middleman there. No, he didn't have the money. You just steal the bass? Yeah. Okay, there wasn't a base available to steal. <laughs> Talking about his early life years later, he said, quote, I had a bad upbringing and I'm dealing with that every day. I spent more money on therapy than most rock stars spent on cars, end quote. Okay. 
a therapy king. Well, probably not at the beginning. This is probably in re- more recent years. We're trying. Yeah, it's still good. We're a fan of the trying here. He said that since he never really had a strong father figure, he looked up to rock stars like Keith Richards and just started to copy their style and interests. Then he heard about the L.A. punk scene and and the partying that they were doing and felt like he was missing out. So at the age of 17, he moved to Los Angeles to audition for different bands. He also started going by the name Nikki Six. What was his name? Frank? Frank Ferrana. Or Ferrano. That's better. Than Nikki Six? Yes. All right. That is absolutely better. <laughs> like, no offense to Nikki's, but... <sighs> While trying to make it, he worked some menial jobs like selling vacuums over the phone and working at a liquor store. He answered an ad in a magazine for a band named Sister that was looking for a bassist. He got the job, recorded a couple of demos with them, and was then fired. He then joined the glam rock band called London and recorded a bit with them, but it didn't last long and he left the band soon after starting it. That band, though it didn't achieve any of its own success, actually had several prominent members. They had Nicky, who went on to be in Motley Crue. They had a member of the band Wasp, which was a pretty big glam metal band, Mm -hmm. and a member of Guns N' Roses in the band. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, I think... In that, in that like L.A. metal scene, everyone just kind of mixed. Like they were all just starting bands until one latched on. So everyone knew each other in the club scene. I feel like there's an alternate universe where like that was the band. Yeah, maybe. Then in 1981, when Nikki was 22 years old, he met at a Denny's to talk to a drummer from a band called Sweet 19. That is where all of the good business right. dinners happen. Especially in L.A. The Denny's in L.A., top notch. I'm sure. Uh, Sweet 19 is spelled like Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, not like Sweet 16. What's that again? Sweet 19? Yeah. It was the band that the drummer was in that he's meeting at Denny's to talk to. Okay. Nikki saw Sweet 19 play live and loved the drummer's style, so he and Tommy Lee met to talk about starting their own band. So now let's go back in time to talk about Tommy Lee. Okay, that was an interesting one. Thomas Lee Bass, or Bass, but probably Bass, was born in 1962 in Athens, Greece. Wait, really? (laughs) Yeah. I didn't expect that. (laughs) His dad was a sergeant in the army, and his mother was a contestant in the 1957 Miss Greece beauty pageant. Which army? The United States Army, probably. Okay. I was just curious. Yeah. When he was about two years old, they moved back to the United States and settled in California. He got his first pair of drumsticks when he was four years old and his first drum set as a teenager. The the drumstick at four years old thing is bold. Drumsticks, though. Right, which is bolder. That's double the, the things that are going to get banged on. That's true, but at least it's not as loud and obnoxious as a full drum set. Well, yeah, but I'm just, I, I just am saying four years old, that's good. Yeah. That's that's love right there. His first main drum influence was Peter Chris from the band Kiss. Tommy knew he wanted to be a musician, so he dropped out of high school and started playing in the LA club scenes where he was known as T-Bone because he was 6 foot 3 and very skinny. 
I couldn't really find much information about Sweet 19. I know that Tommy joined them when he was only 17. And like a lot of these club bands in the same scene, members would come and go and join other bands, some of which got mildly popular and most didn't. A guitarist for Sweet 19 ended up being in the band Quiet Riot, who helped explode metal in the U.S. We talked about them. I remember that. With their Come On, Feel the Noise. Yes. So a member of Sweet Sweet 19 ended up being in that band. But somehow Tommy got involved with this band and Nikki saw one of their shows. By the time Nikki was looking to start his own band, Sweet 19 was kind of like dead. And Tommy Lee was all ears for a new opportunity. Apparently, Nikki wanted to start a theatrical metal band that borrowed from the occult themes of his first band, Sister. Theatrics? Yeah. No way. <laughs> so the two started to look for more members for the band. Originally, they worked with Greg Leon on vocals, who was also a member of Sweet 19, but they rehearsed quite a bit with him, and Greg decided that it really wasn't a great fit for him, and he left the band. Which I bet he regrets you know, you got to do what you got to yeah. do. You got to go in your own way. Might not have been as successful without their like actual singer. So what about us? What about us? What about everything we've been through? Oh, what about trust? Is that the next? I never wanted to hurt you. <laughs> okay. Um, what about me? That's all. Okay. Nikki wanted to have a frontman like Van Halen, someone who just sang, but Greg wanted to play guitar and sing like Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton. So they went their own ways, which makes sense. Who's Eric Clapton? Um, he was in the Yardbirds. Uh, he's just guitarist, singer. I don't know. He sounds country. He is definitely not. He's British, like British rock. He was good friends with... The Beatles guitarist. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. One of the best guitarists of all time, many people would say. So the duo of Nikki and Tommy needed a singer and some other guitarists. That's when they saw an advertisement in a magazine called The Recycler that said, quote, loud, rude, and aggressive guitar player available, end quote. <laughs> a person knows how to market themselves. Right. They knew what they were looking for. A guy named Bob Deal had placed the ad. So they responded to the ad, and Bob Deal, who is better known as Mick Mars, auditioned and joined the band. Mick Mars is better than Bob than Deal. Bob Deal. Yeah. Okay. Bob Deal sounds like a fake name of like a presenter on a game show. It does. So let's go back in time and talk about Bob slash Mick. I feel like if you want your child to be a successful musician, name them Mick. This is the third Mick we've talked about in popular bands. Do we want our child to be a successful musician? I don't know if I want them being in a Motley Crue type band. There are other Micks. Are they? Because all of them had pretty rough band experiences. Mick Fleetwood, that was a rough time. Mick Jagger, they also were pretty, pretty rough time. Anyway. McMuffin. That's true. I do like the McMuffin. Bob Deal was born in Indiana in 1951. His family moved around a lot when he was younger, trying to find better job prospects. In Indiana, he saw a country act play at a fair, and that's when he decided that music was what he wanted to do with his life. 
That is an interesting first inspiration <laughs> for yep. someone in Motley Crue. He later said that he was only three years old when that happened, but he still knew. Which I don't is, know that I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember being five years old. <laughs> he said, quote, I saw this country musician play at the fair. His name was Skeeter Bond. How does he know that if he was only three years old? Maybe someone told him later. I call BS. I'm just kidding. And he had on this orange outfit with sequins all over it. That would catch my attention as a three-year-old. We're back on track. And he wore this large Stetson hat and he played guitar and sang. I said, that's what I'm doing with my life. And hat and all. <laughs> sequins and all. Yep, He was known for his orange outfits with sequins. It's Bef a good thing to be known for. Before he was nine years old, his family moved to California. That was the move that stuck and shaped Bob's life. Orange County had a thriving music scene that Bob wasted no time jumping into. He quickly dropped out of school to focus on music. Like they all did, he joined a few different, mostly blues rock bands, and they were all unsuccessful. Bob just kind of like struggled around in the local music scene for basically a decade before he decided to reinvent himself. He changed his name to Mick Mars and dyed his hair jet black. It's a good start. In April of 1980, he put that ad in the Recycler magazine, which eventually led to the band that changed the rest of his life. Wow. So he was like, he just full on was like, I'm an asshole now. <laughs> that's, that's what's going to work. And then it worked. Yeah, I mean, maybe. <laughs> he was also a decade older than the other members of the band and way more seasoned in the local scene. So just keep that in mind, the little age gap as we move along with the story. I don't trust him now. <laughs> eh, he seems fine. So they had all the musicians they needed. Now they needed a singer. Tommy Lee had an old friend from high school named Vince Neal, who was a singer. The two had played together in a few garage bands as they were coming up. And then Mick saw him perform with a band called Rock Candy in Hollywood. Rock Candy is a good name. Yeah. I it's got multiple, like multiple meanings. And I do like <laughs> Rock Candy. We get to, used to get them at the zoo. So Mick suggested that the band ask him to join. Who's Tommy Lee? Tommy Lee's the drummer, T-Bone. Ah. Mick Mars is guitarist, and then Nikki Six is bassist with Rough Frank. Turns. Yes. Um, so Mick suggested that the band ask Vince Neil to join. At first, Vince declined the offer. After all, he was already in a band that was playing somewhat high-profile shows. Why risk that to join an upstart band? But then members of Rock Candy all started to pursue other projects, and Vince Neil got a little bit anxious about his position in that band. So he eventually took them up on their offer, and just like that, the band had a singer. So now let's talk about Vince Neil. Go on, I like that one. Vince Neil was born in Hollywood in 1961. Wow! His... In Hollywood? <laughs> on the sign? Yeah, that's the only place that exists in Hollywood. It's the sign. Wow. His family moved around a bit in Southern California before finally settling in Compton. I don't know if you know much about Compton, but it's not necessarily the most family-friendly place. I know that you can come straight out of it. <laughs> yeah. Vince once had his face slashed by a gang member. So he had to become streetwise to survive. But he was also dyslexic, so he struggled in school and was eventually expelled. Street smarts! 
Before he got expelled, he was really into sports and surfing, even making the school's surfing team. He started singing singing and playing with garage bands around the age of 14 or 15, and he always knew that music was his first love. He joined Rock Candy when he was just 17 years old and joined Motley Crue when he was 18. Vince also had a son with his girlfriend when he was 16 or 17. I can't really find that much information about that relationship or that son, despite the fact that he became a somewhat successful rock musician in his own right, but I guess it's none of my business, so I guess probably fine that I can't find information about him. Pretty soon after joining Motley Crue, Vince married a girl named Beth Lynn. In his autobiography, Vince calls her a rich girl from San Diego. That is the type of girl you want to marry. Right. He also says they met through Nikki Six in that she was a groupie, but was also, quote, super hot. Uh, okay. <laughs> a hot, rich groupie? I mean, that's the dream, right? It's <laughs> what we all aspire to be and all aspire to have. Honestly. <laughs> I think you're joking, but I'm low-key not. <laughs> That's great energy. <laughs> they got together because Nikki Six wanted to have a threesome with Beth and Vince. But then Nikki passed out. So Vince and Beth just kind of went ahead without him. Honestly? <laughs> Way to go, Vince. <laughs> <laughs> and then from that night on, they were dating. When they met, Vince was in a serious relationship and was about to get married, but he ended it for Beth. Oh, wow. Um, unway to go, Vince. There's a running theme is that they're not that nice to women. So just hold off on your praise for any of these guys. Vince says that he can't remember why they got married. They were doing a lot of drugs at the time, so he probably can't remember much. But he thinks he cheated on her and getting married was his way of apologizing. Nice. As you might guess, with that rock-solid foundation, the marriage didn't work, and they divorced a few years later. I was giving a month, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, they made it good. a little bit. But now we have a band. Nikki Six on bass, Tommy Lee on drums, Mick Mars on guitar, and Vince Neil, the vocalist. Vince officially joined on April 1st, 1981, and they played their first show on April 24th. There's a common legend that Nikki says is true, that that first show ended in a fist fight. I feel like that question would have been asked like later looking back. And he, and at that point they had their like image. So I feel like that's on un, uh, yeah, I feel like that is an unreliable source personally. Okay. Well, he said, quote, the very first show Vince and I ended up in the crowd in a fist fight. That kind of set a precedent for who we are and what we do. Fighting each quote. other? I don't think so. I think fighting the crowd. Or someone in the crowd. Interesting. I mean, bands have done that. Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day once jumped off the stage to fight a guy because he was being mean in the crowd. It happens. But at this time, they still didn't have a name. Nikki was thinking of calling them Christmas. That's awful. Uh, but this is the guy who named himself Nikki Six. <laughs> so. But then Mick remembered when someone called one of his old bands a motley looking crew. He liked the phrase and wrote it down to use at some point in the future. So they kind of messed up the spelling a bit and settled on motley crew as their name. 
things moved pretty quickly after that. They were playing a lot of shows in the Hollywood club scene and getting pretty popular in that local area. They landed a manager who set up a record label for them to basically self-produce their first album. That would be awful to be their manager. Yeah. That would be truly an awful job. Be terrible Most also manager be, jobs are pretty bad, but like... Also to be like their publicist, that would be rough. Oh. They're giving you stuff to work with. Yeah, but not good stuff. I think they all leaned into it, though. Yeah. Um, they released a single called Stick to Your Guns before releasing their debut album in November of 1981. You want to hear Stick to Your Guns? I do. I forgot we listen to music sometimes. Yeah. I think the story of Motley Crue is more interesting than the music, so <laughs> we have less music in this one, I think. Stick to your guns. I'm here for it. Yeah. Are that, any of them still alive? I think they all are. No. Yeah. We'll get there, but yeah. I'm shocked. Well, I was trying to decide whether or not I wanted to like listen to their music because I like it or if I don't want to support them <laughs> as humans. <laughs> well, I'll leave that up to you. That debut album that was self-produced ended up selling 20,000 copies. Their manager used the group's massive success in Hollywood to like start negotiating some record deals for the group. They eventually signed with Elektra Records in early 1982, less than a year after forming, which is wild. And Elektra reproduced and re-released that debut album. We can't really have a Motley Crue episode without talking about some of their shenanigans, so I figured I'd just give you like brief headline-type stories of the early time of their band. Shenanigans makes it sound like Innocent goofy. and fun, yeah. <laughs> so this was when they were all living in a crappy apartment on the Sunset Strip, an apartment infested with roaches that they'd burn with a lighter and hairspray. We've all been there. Because they couldn't afford the bug poison. It's probably more effective. Yeah. <laughs> they also didn't buy toilet paper to save money, so they'd use socks and magazine pages when they needed to. Which it seems like socks are more expensive, so are they washing them? Is that what's happening? Um They were stinky. <laughs> Probably. Gross. So they Who once... wanted to have sex with them? A lot of people. A with, lot a, of people. with a stinky butt. They once poured gas on a tree in their courtyard and set it on fire just for fun. Tommy Lee slept with a studio engineer to get the band some free time in the studio. Yeah. Which is how they ended up recording their first singles. 
Vince Neil once bought cocaine from a drag queen, which turned out to be baby powder. <laughs> so he got into a massive bar fight with the drag queen slash dealer. <laughs> Stop. That is so funny. Nikki once got super fed up with a punk rock poser hanging around their apartment that he nailed the guy's earlobe to the coffee table. Okay. They once peed inside a cop car after the cop was giving them a hard time at a bar. That just sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. So all of that was the early days. Motley Crue was about to make it big and take these antics to a whole different level. Electra sent them on their first tour, which was a tour of Canada in 1982. Huh. And they immediately started to get into more shenanigans. Why did they send them to Canada first? I don't know. Maybe smaller markets? I have no idea. They were arrested at customs for wearing their spiked stage wardrobes through security, which were considered dangerous weapons. Does that... Does that... Necessitate... Arrest? Maybe arrest was too strong of a word. Maybe it was detained. Detained? It's probably a more accurate word. Does necessitate a word? Yeah. Okay. I don't even know if the TSA has the ability to arrest people. Was was there even a TSA at this point? Or was TSA a post 9-11 thing? I don't know what security was like at airports pre-9-11. So. Asking me a lot of questions that I do not know the answer okay. to. Well, also at that same airport, Vince had a small carry-on that was filled with porn. So that was confiscated and destroyed. That seems unfair. But, I'm going to call the airport out on that one. Well, both of those events were staged PR stunts. So what? It's like strippers dressed as cops who are like <laughs> arresting them. Like or they just like, I don't know. They probably just worked it out with the, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how they did it, but it was all set up. Honestly, smart. Yeah. There was also a bomb threat at their show in Edmonton which also ended up being a stage stunt by their PR guy. So that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> that one is really bad. Yeah. I don't like. Then Tommy Lee threw a TV set through their upper story hotel room's window, which resulted in them being banned from that city for life. From the city? Yep. They got banned from Edmonton. The tour eventually ended early. And Didn't that have to do more with the bomb threat? <laughs> Maybe. It's probably just a combination of everything. I feel like that had to do more with the bomb threat. Than the TV? Than the TV. I feel like that's just your average property damage. <laughs> Unless he's throwing it onto a street where people are walking by from an upper story window. Then that's like life-threatening. <sighs> anyway, the tour ended early in financial disaster, but these highly publicized incident incidents set the stage of what the band was going to be like. Later that year, they fired their manager and replaced him with the manager for Bon Jovi and Kiss. So someone who had a little bit of experience in this whole scene. That person had to be psycho. Yeah. Or a masochist. Yeah. Or just really into the music. Mm. <laughs> or the money. Mm -hmm. In 1983, they started working on a new album. The title track, Too Fast for Love was recorded in a three-day session in which the band members were drunk the whole time. I don't totally understand why they would pick that title. Too Fast for Love? 
Uh huh. Right, well, let's find out because here is too fast for love. Are they going to move on too fast for love? No, they're just so fast you can't catch them. Too fast. They're too fast for love. When did they get umlauts? That's they changed it. They didn't oh. have it before. Maybe that was just they spelt it differently. Huh? That was a different channel. Because they've always been spelled Right, but now they have umlaut. Morley Crew has good songs to forget about people and drift into a different world. Are you okay? Well, that was too fast for love. They're, they're speedy. They're quick. You can't catch them. That wasn't what I was thinking. Okay. In 1983, they started out on what would be the biggest tour so far for them, opening for Kiss. That's a big jump from Canada. Right. The two bands were on opposite ends of the spectrum. With their one album slowly gaining a little bit of traction, Motley Crue were on the rise. Meanwhile, Kiss were declining rapidly. They thought that the crew could help them sell tickets on the West Coast. Nikki explained that the band's mindset going into the tour, quote, We just wanted to get in the ring with anybody. The ring was getting on that stage, playing in front of anybody's crowd. We didn't care whose it was because we believed in ourselves and we were in that place. We were in that positive place. Everything we were doing was working internally, end quote. All right, some manifestation. They only ended up playing a handful of shows with Kiss. Apparently they were so unruly that Gene Simmons fired them. I don't know that that's everything working out. (laughs) He said internally, not externally. Meanwhile, the band started to become successful in the mainstream. Already, they were known as hardcore partiers and a bit infamous. Also through MTV and playing a few bigger festivals, they got their name out there. Everything changed with their second album, which was called Shout at the Devil, and it was released in September of 1983. That is a better title. Okay. I shout at the devil. All right. Probably not in the same way. This album broke them fully into the mainstream, eventually going four times platinum. Of course, it invoked a lot of controversy because it looked like Satanism. They're like, hey, devil, come on over here. We want to hang out. Meanwhile, I'm like, ah, why? (laughs) Yeah, probably. Okay. During the recording of this album, Nikki Six got super drunk, stumbled naked into his friend's Porsche, sped away from watching fans, and promptly crashed into a pole, which hurt his shoulder pretty bad, and he was prescribed Percocet. None of that is sexy. No, but that Percocet subscription ended up leading him into a crippling heroin addiction, that cost him, he said, roughly $3,500 per day at its peak. Oh, whoa. Yeah. So here's that song called Shout at the Devil. 
realize how long this intro was. I'm fascinated. <laughs> Just pops up out of nowhere. Possible, yeah. Crotch shot. Every glam metal band needs a good crotch shot. Shout out the devil. I'm less I'm less in love with the vocals now. Yeah. It's, well, we'll see it's a little they, much. See if they turn you back around. So that album got the attention of Ozzy Osbourne, who invited them on tour to support it. During that tour, Ozzy dared Nikki Six to pee on the floor and lick it up. So Nikki peed on the floor, but Ozzy ended up drinking it. Ozzy says he has no memory of this happening, but the band swears it happened. They, I'm sure it did. They said that they were a young band and Ozzy took them under his wing, which sounds like a rough place to be. Nikki said, quote, we thought we could compete with that, but you can't with Ozzy. He won, end quote. What did he win? Just He just won. In what way? <laughs> I don't know. During this tour, the band seriously considered firing Mick and replacing him with a more technical guitarist. Yes, because technicality is really <laughs> their MO. But when they asked for advice from a more technical technical guitarist that they actually wanted to hire, he said, quote, don't fix what isn't broken. Seems like pretty good advice. It is. It also seems like he didn't want to work with them. <laughs> Can't blame them, really. <laughs> In 1984, after that album and tour, Vince Neil drove drunk and ended up in a terrible crash that killed the drummer for the band Hanoi Rocks. We talked about that a little bit more detail last episode, so mm -hmm. go listen to that. Vince ended up spending 18 days in jail. That paired with Nikki's rapidly increasing heroin addiction and their reputation for nonstop partying really made people think that they were a dangerous band. Just now... Yeah. Not the bomb threat. I mean, this has also been like two years, so I haven't had a lot of time to like rise to that mainstream attention level yet. Okay. In 1985, they released their third album that ushered in a glam metal phase in their style. It was commercially successful, reaching number six in the chart, but critics largely didn't love it. Nikki Six was the primary songwriter, and he was heavily addicted to heroin during this. He even wrote one song, Dancing on Glass, about the time he OD'd on heroin at his dealer's house. His dealer thought it was too risky to take him to the hospital, so he dumped Nikki in a dumpster. 
And this is why we need Narcan available for everybody. Yeah. The next morning, Nikki woke up very confused. I'm glad he woke up. Yep. So here is Dancing on Glass. Girls, girls, girls. That's a good title. I do like them. The Umlauts are back. Dancing on glass. Thoughts? Are they winning you back over a little bit? It was better. All right. We'll take that. This album also featured a successful ballad that kind of paved the way for the power ballad being a massive thing in this genre. In 1986, Tommy Lee saw Heather Locklear, who was an actress, backstage at a concert and asked someone to introduce them because he was too nervous to talk to her. They then had a whirlwind relationship that ended up with them getting married when Tommy was 23. Wow. That's like, it's just weird to think about how young everyone still is. Right. The relationship was pretty rocky and Tommy admitted to cheating on her multiple times with adult film stars. They ended up divorcing in 1993. Meanwhile, Vince Neil also got married again in 1987 to a model and mud wrestler. Okay, the hot. <laughs> they had one daughter and divorced in 1993. The, the year of divorces. Right. And my birth. Nikki got engaged to a model and singer who had sung with Prince and supposedly been Prince's lover for a while. Also hot. Her name was Vanity. It's probably not her real name. Nikki said, quote, at the time, I thought of Vanity as a disposable human being. Oh. Like a used needle. What? Once its purpose was fulfilled, it was ready for the trash, only to be dug up if you were really desperate. Oh. We became drug buddies. Sometimes you could even just about call us boyfriend and girlfriend. End quote. I would like to hear her point of view. But it wasn't a good relationship, and when they broke up, Nikki married a Playboy playmate. They really love marriage. (laughs) Yeah. One of Vanity's movie co-stars invited her to read the Bible. She found Jesus, renounced her life as Vanity, and became a full-time Christian evangelist. Stop it. Until she passed away from kidney failure in 2016. Stop what? Yeah. Big, big turnaround for her. In 1987, their fourth album debuted at number two. Nikki believes the album would have debuted at number one if it wasn't for the -the behind-the-scenes negotiations that Whitney Houston's label did to get her album number one. Mm, Um, (laughs) that's an interesting assumption. Yeah, I don't. (laughs) I mean, he had some like. 
I didn't put it in here and I don't remember it, but he had some like reason for that. Like he didn't just say behind the scenes to go like he said like they did this and that's what did it, but I didn't put that in here. So uh-huh. either way, probably not true. It's probably just because she's Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston. They again changed their image from the glam rock style to a more biker aesthetic. And again, <laughs> Nikki wrote a song inspired by a heroin overdose. They started out with a biker aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, they reverted. This time, a paramedic who was a fan of the band revived him with two shots of adrenaline in an ambulance. All right. Which inspired the song called Kickstart My Heart. Things were starting to like come to a head with their party lifestyle. Nikki Six, who had kept a diary every day during his heroin addiction, entered rehab. That is a weird amount of self-control and dedication. <laughs> it really is. Or just like a lot of like just self-importance. Yeah, that probably. <laughs> the band's managers refused to let them tour Europe, thinking that at least a couple of them would come back in body bags. The last time they toured Europe, Tommy Lee and Nikki Six would break bottles over each other's heads and swallow light bulbs just because they were bored. Shortly after that, they all entered rehab together in an effort to move the band forward. Okay. In the fall of 1989, they released Dr. Feelgood, which is widely considered their best album. That's funny. For the first time, the members of the band recorded their parts separately to cut back on infighting and focus on the playing. It hit number one and stayed in the charts for 114 weeks. Wow. Kickstart My Heart was nominated for a Grammy. And here is Kickstart My Heart. Okay. Majorly Cool Driver. This and what, okay, I remember you saying maybe they shouldn't have a video of the car crashing. I did say that. Thing. I did say that. imagine that this is what it feels like to be suddenly like revived and alive again yeah, probably. it's probably yeah are you still experiencing the effects of the drugs after you get revived from an overdose i would imagine so right it's still in there so i i haven't done drugs to the point of an overdose and so i don't know no, most of the drug exposure that I've seen have been parents in the bathroom, people denying that they're high when they're obviously high, and then two young kids who got into a boatload of Delta 8 because they were well, that was kicked off my heart. They spent most of the next couple of years on a massive tour that left them feeling pretty burnt out. 
This was also around the time that their genre of music was on the downward spiral. They released a compilation album in 1991, and after that, Vince Neil left the band. Compilation albums. Not a good sign. No. It's not really known if Vince quit or if he was kicked out. Vince says he was kicked out. Nikki says he quit. Vince later said that it was a rehearsal spat that got him out of control and the management just kind of let them break up. Their next album, without Vince, did not do that well. He, he's their singer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, bands have changed singers before and been fine. So they hired a new singer? Yes. Oh, okay. Fans hated the band without Vince, and the album just didn't sell. Things weren't looking good. Meanwhile, Vince released a somewhat successful solo album. Towards the end of 1996, Rolling Stone broke the news that the band would be reuniting with Vince Neil. They released a new album that debuted at number four, but was a commercial failure, largely because their label just didn't support it. How does one debut in a top spot? Like, I feel like that has, like, how did, everyone starts from zero. Well, it's like, it records it for the past week. So you start from zero and then it releases on a Thursday morning. So if the chart comes out that next Friday, then you have eight days of sales or whatever. Oh. It's not like a daily chart. Oh. Um, in 1999, during a bit of a hiatus, Tommy Lee announced that he was leaving the band. He didn't get along with Vince, and he didn't enjoy playing that type of music anymore. Right before leaving the band, Tommy Lee married model and actress Pamela Anderson. Oh! Is that sarcastic, or is that... No, that's uh, Tommy. Okay. Tommy yeah. Lee. I understand. Um, they filmed a sex tape on a boat that was stolen and illegally released online. It became probably the first major celebrity sex tape scandal. Major bummer. There's now a Hulu series about that whole situation. Starring Nick Offerman, I think. What? I think he's one of the guys who, like, stole it and distributed it. I think. Shame on him. Shame on you, Nick. Just just to be clear, he played a guy. <laughs> Shame <laughs> so on you, Nick that Offerman. For clear he was not involved the actual actor was not involved in this situation the band oh how the mighty fall (laughs) the band released a new album in 2000 and here is a song from that album just so you can kind of see where they're at now or were 23 years ago oh my god hell on high heels (laughs) like that i want that to be my mantra all right I, I will never embody that, but like, oh my gosh. Thank you, baby. I don't think so. I don't, I don't have hell in me. But it's also the same thing they've been playing for 
It's melodically more interesting. All right. Oh, so that's from there. Two thousand broke, don't fix it, right? That is true. After that album, they went into hiatus. Nikki worked with other bands. Vince appeared in a few VH1 shows, like The Surreal Life. And Mick stepped away to focus on his health. In 2005, they were reunited for another tour. They released a book authored by all four of them called Dirt. And Nikki released his diaries as a book. I think he had been planning that day for a long time. Probably, yeah. Since then, they've done several retirements and reunions, even doing a cruise at one point. What? I mean, a lot of those big-time rock bands do that. A cruise? Them yeah. on a cruise. Yeah. But, like, old to them. Like, 60-year-old them. I need to see one of those performances. <laughs> what does the hair and makeup look like? What is the energy level? I, I mean, probably still decent for them. I don't know. But anyway, they're mostly just kind of living the life of famous rock stars. Mick Mars has suffered from a form of chronic arthritis that left him in a ton of pain. It causes his lower spine to freeze up, leading to scoliosis. That's rough. He said in 2013 that his neck was so stiff that he couldn't even drive a car. So in 2022, he announced that he would be retiring from touring with the band to focus on his health. That's just kind of all the updates. That's They're still just out there, just living that life of once famous rock stars. Got got any 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 last thoughts on Molly Crew? Unimpressive. All right. Well, next episode we're getting into getting into alternative rock. I like that. Okay. Well, you can see more of where it came from. Anyway, that's Motley Crew. Huh. <laughs> Are you underwhelmed? Yeah, a little bit. All right. If the coolest, most memorable thing about you is the fact that you're complete and total assholes. Yeah. I mean, they right. also made some good music, according to people. It was good for the style and the time that they were in. I didn't, like, hate it. Yeah. Wild. I think they were very innovative in the genre, which means their stuff just kind of sounds like other people's stuff but it's because other people's stuff sounds like them yeah it's like it's the thing that the beatles have where it's Mm -hmm. like you listen to them now and you're like that's not there's nothing really impressive about this but it's because they did it first yeah like everyone else doing it is just doing it because the beatles did it all right but i mean that's not completely true like other bands were innovating and stuff but they're just i mean they were just out before a lot of the other bands well all right well that was molly crew Join us next time for Alternative Rock, and then we talk about R.E.M. That's sleep. That's, that's debate. You don't know the thing the band is. That's just a little sneak, sneak peek of the R.E.M. Moon! Moon!